writers, agents, and publishers, for the first time since the Gutenberg Press, find themselves lost in a maze of mystery as technology alters the shape of the publishing industry. Searching for Answers is a group of writers throwing pop culture, writing, and publishing into a crucible of clarity, passion, and humor. This group is the Right Pack. In this episode of Right Pack Radio, the Right Pack are going to celebrate the life of James Thurber and talk about comedy. Stay tuned. Welcome back to Right Pack Radio. This is your host and producer, David Allen Lucas. Struggling as he gets through NaNoWriMo, and of course we are recording in the past. I think this episode actually airs after NaNoWriMo is over with. But just, no it doesn't. <laughs> Wait. Wait, yeah, yes it does. Is it airing December? Is it airing in December? So yes it is. Is it the early part of December? It's after. I'm after. I don't know what I'm doing anymore. You know, it is the very first uh, Sunday in December. There is no life after NaNo. Yeah, I know. You've died. <laughs> I, I have died. I am, I am recuperating. This is the corpse talking to you now. <laughs> And with me today is my lovely wife. Hi, I'm Melanie Lucas, currently 10,000 words behind in Dan Orbeckman. I've written something this week. That's good. I, I, can't, I can't say anything there because thank you to Jen and Jessica who confirmed for me that going back to zero doesn't mean going back to plot and everything else doesn't mean I erase everything. Nope. I words still, count I as still, words. All words know. count, so I don't have a clue what my word count is right now, but... I know I'll hit 50,000 by the time I'm done. Right. Just I won't have a novel right anywhere rough drafted. And also with me is the Madame of Murder and Mayhem herself. Fedora Amos. I write Victorian whodunits like Jack the Ripper in St. Louis and Mayhem at Buffalo Bill's Wild West. And soon to be released from Five Star, have your ticket punched by Frank James. I am also president of Greater St. Louis Sisters in Crime. And I was, I'm very pleased that I did a performance for... The Wednesday Club. Do you have any idea how hard it is to get a gig at the Wednesday Club? <laughs> I know. It's great. I, I have to admit, I have not heard of this Wednesday Club. What is this? Oh, it's a, well, there were, there are still women's clubs in St. Louis. You know, there were once men's clubs that had their own clubhouses like Missouri Athletic Club, which was right. men only for mm-hmm. a very long time. Well, there were women's clubs, too. They didn't what, operate quite the same way. But there was a St. Louis women's club and the Monday club and the Wednesday club, which, oddly enough, <laughs> met on Mondays and Wednesdays. <laughs> and were sort of the uh, elite, you know, the sophisticated socialite types for them to get together and enjoy each other's company and make plans for the women of St. Louis. Interesting. And also with us today is our... Lovely illustrator and children's author, and take it away. Yeah, hook yuck comedian. Hook yuck comedian, okay. <laughs> no, you know. I don't want to be a hook yuck comedian. Uh, my name is Jennifer Stolzer. I'm a children's book author and illustrator. Uh, I'm kind of participating in NaNo. Uh, mostly I'm using the NaNoWriMo website to clock how many words I write in a month, knowing full well I won't hit the 50,000. So, but I like watching the graph go up, so it's been a hoot. Um, since this is the beginning of December, if you live in the St. Louis area, uh, myself, along with 11 other uh, female authors, local female authors, including uh, the woman sitting next to me, meh, meh, will be, uh, we're going to have a big women's writing day next weekend. Uh, December the 8th is just really a, a book fair. Come by uh, Christmas gifts and get coffee and stuff. And we've literally wedged as many people as we could possibly get into Six North Cafe in Baldwin. We have a list in the back of people we need to invite next time because there was literally not enough room for every every notable female author that we knew that we wanted to come. So if you'd like to come next year, Fedora, you just let us know. <laughs> <laughs> well, I have a new book out next year, so I'll take you up on that. Perfect. Program. Put her on the list. <laughs> and coming also back to us, mm-hmm. she was a guest star not too long ago, so... She decided to come in and join us for the next two episodes, and that is the Queen of the Sparkly Pirates. <laughs> Actually, that's not your title of your book. It's close, though. She's the, <laughs> you're the Queen of the Pirate Princess. Yes. I'm only here for food, guys. I don't know what you <laughs> what you want from me. Uh, no, I'm Jessica Matthews. I do children's picture books, including The Old Man and the Pirate Princess, which is now a series. Jennifer's working on illustrations to be due in April. Um... 
And I also do adult paranormal fiction, so a little bit of everything. Excellent. And I grew up on comedy, so we'll see how this goes. <laughs> now, with that opening, thank you, Jessica, um, we are going to talk about James Thurber. I'm going to talk about him very briefly, but I'm going to, I have to, in all honesty to our listeners, I have to do a confession. Bless me, Father, for I have sinned. But, um, excuse me, a little Catholic humor. Generally speaking, I am not a fan of comedy. Now, that's not true. There are some comedies I do like, but I'm going to be silent probably for a lot of this, a lot of this episode because what's put on American television anyway, and a lot of good comedians out there supposedly that have various movies I can't stand. So, there's moving. A of, there's a lot of rich in humor he doesn't like YouTube. Yeah, there is. And with that said, um, there, are, there are those I do like, so there, I will bring those up. But with that, let's talk about who James Thurber is and was. Um, he was born December 8th, 1894, so this is a happy birthday month. He died November 2nd, 1961. He was an American cartoonist, humorist, author, journalist, playwright, and a celeb- celebrated wit. He is best known for his cartoons and his short stories, mostly that were mainly published in the New Yorker magazine, such as The Catbird Seat, and various collections in his numerous books. He was one of the most popular humor, humorists of his time, as he, as he celebrated the comic frustrations and eccentricities of ordinary people. He wrote Broadway humor, um... And there's some film adaptions of some of his works, especially one which you might know, whether or not you know the 1947 version or the more recent 2013 version, and that that is The Secret Life of Walter Mitty. And with that, I'm going to turn this over. I'm going to, because I know she's got some history on it. No? Sure. Go for it. Back over to Fedora. (laughs) Why not? Uh, talking about Thurber and ordinary people, I'm not so sure. He was a big socialite, you know, from New York, and and uh, the darling of New Yorker. And you can't imagine how elite and erudite you have to be to be the darling of the New Yorker. But it wasn't about people in general so much as men who were threatened by powerful women. His most famous cartoon has this itty bitty bitty guy walking up to the door of his house. And it's a two-story house, but it's not just a house. It's also a house that is a menacing big woman with arms out ready to grab him. (laughs) So that's what it was. It was more of a, I think, a reaction to the fact that in that time era, in the 1920s and 30s, women changed. (laughs) We got the vote, we got short skirts and bobbed hair, and we stopped being just the little house frau. (laughs) Yay for that. Yeah. Um. <laughs> it's very interesting. He saw that come in, he saw that go away, and then he died right before that came back again. <laughs> yeah. He was well, probably he, glad that he yeah, died. Yeah. Yeah. Well, he died in 61? 61. Yeah. yeah, so basically right before it started again. Right, right before the <laughs> 60s revolution. Mm-hmm. So, let me ask you, uh, I had to look this up, I admit I used Wikipedia, so <laughs> fair enough, but there are about 24 different comedic genres. I am, if I count it correctly, it should be about right, which is kind of a surprise. What makes a good comedy, in your opinion, and note, not everybody's taste in comedy is going to be the same. Clearly mine's not, as I've already admitted. Go ahead, Fedora. Well, I'll start with a, a little a little definition, which was by Harvey Mindless, or Mindless, if that's what you prefer. Hmm. He said that humor reassures the insecure. That is our job. Humor is social criticism. How does it reinforce us? By making us feel superior in some way. And, of course, there are legitimate ways to feel superior. Do good things. Do great things. And you are superior. But if you are not that fortunate or that uh, driven, humor, then, is the weapon of the underdog. Much as Thurber saw it, I must say, we must look for avenues through which we can disgorge our feelings of inferiority by discovering the blemishes 
of our superiors. And that gives the essential notion that humor is always somewhat cruel. <laughs> it is deflating to somebody, maybe yourself, or maybe others. Now, I will say one thing about humor, and that is, especially with the deflating or derogatory, lack of a better way of saying it, is the humor of it is political in nature. And what I mean is humorous all the way back to William Shakespeare and Shirley before him. And oh, even, the ancient Greeks wrote comedies. Exactly. They're still funny today when you yeah. get right down to it. It's right. translated well. <laughs> but they would go and make comedy of people in power. Absolutely. And that, that is, that's a trick that you got to be careful with, especially <laughs> if you can be thrown in jail or worse for that, depending on where you live and when you lived. So, okay, yes, I'm thinking of a play I actually saw called A Bit of the Bard that was written time period Ronald Reagan was president of the United States. The short um, plot of it is it was a one-man play. The man was a comedian who had been, who was a stage actor, comedian, who was shot in the you-know-what, the backside, mm-hmm. by a, another actor known as Nilrim, which spelled backwards as Merlin, from the times of Shakespeare, and he comes to the 20th century. And he's one, one of the things from there he talked about was, I just don't understand you 20th centurions. <laughs> in my day, an actor was lucky he made it out of town alive and got paid. We were often thrown in jail and made fun of. But no, you elect one as your president, and then you proceed to make fun of him. So going on, I found that humor back then funny. But anyway. That humor is applicable for every single presidential everything. Yes, I agree. <laughs> so what else, what do you guys consider to be funny? What 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 do you look for? Let me ask you this way. Does anybody here in this room write comedy? I do not, clearly. I've already made that kind of clear. I can write a comedic essay. I don't write, like, comedy comedy, but I do believe that there's a place for lightheartedness in just about every genre. In In a lot of ways, the comedy aspect of a darker genre, like horror or or thriller, uh, actually makes the horror and thriller parts of those stories stronger because you have a contrast. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So uh, I, I write comedy, but mostly it's to break up all the crying and hugging. <laughs> and you find that, too, um, even in Star Wars. <laughs> the whole entire C-3PO, R2-D2 aspect of that. It's like comic relief. It's comic relief. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah well, I write a lot of that in Paranormal. I'll put a snarky clip in there for a little bit of comedy and whatever craziness is happening. So, mm-hmm. I think that's one of the essences of comedy, that it gives you a twist, it gives you an opposite, it gives you the unexpected. Take this one from John Steinbeck. In a review of Cecil B. DeMille's movie, Samson and Delilah, saw the movie, loved the book. <laughs> there you go. Um, and that's something else, too. So, how do you write comedy? I mean, and no one in here writes strictly comedy. I wish I could have gotten a couple of people I know to come, but they weren't able to. So what do you look for to when you write comedy? I think it depends. This is Melanie. I think it depends completely. I, I just realized in practice, we, we sound alike on the radio. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Oh, no. But um, depends on the type of comedy. Like the one-liners. Mm-hmm. You typically go through the scene and like, okay, what's something snarky, ironic, something that someone can say that it, I have a character that I'm not worrying about this right now because it's the first draft or zero draft or whatever. Point is, I'm not worrying about it. But when I get through it, I expect some scenes are going to be funny because this one character, everything they say is true, but some of the things she says are meant to be misinterpreted. And some of them might be accidentally misinterpreted. And basically, comedy very often comes down to either a misunderstanding or pointing out of the absurdity of life. And so, for instance, when someone lies in such a way, says a statement that is not true, in such a way that they, everyone's hearing them, is supposed to know that's not true, otherwise known as being snarky, 
<laughs> That's often funny. Mm-hmm. And uh, then there's the whole misunderstanding. Sometimes that's funny. I, depending on how it's done in books, I usually cringe through those things. That's the type of comedy that I don't enjoy all that much. Sure. So. As an example of that, Mae West used to use the double entendre yeah. a lot. And here's one of hers. A hat check girl admired her diamonds and said, Goodness, Miss West, you must be awfully good to get all those rocks. Sweetie, goodness had nothing to do with it. I will go with that. I now yeah, said before. <laughs> You're so I, defeatist tonight. That's nice. I like satire. Uh-huh, I and do that's too. pointing out well, and I also like pointing out things that send up things to point out the absurdity of life. And when you, that lends itself to fantasy, because in the fantasy world, you can bring up things that your reader is going along. It's like, oh, yeah, that's so ridiculous. Then they realize, and if it's good satire, they realize without you beating them over the head with this, like, wait a minute. Real life is just like this, only slightly different. <laughs> yeah, to give you some examples of satire, okay, this is dated, admittedly, because I think the comedian is actually dead. Uh, no, she's still alive. <laughs> I am. I'm shocked. I wasn't surprised, but she is 85 years old now. Who's the comedian? Uh, is Carol Burnett? Okay. She did satire. Then there's also Irma Bombeck, which I know Irma Bombeck is passed on. But giving a taste of satire with her, um, she died back in 1996. But just the title of some of her books alone: "The Grass Is Always Greener on the Other Side of a Septic Tank," "Life Is a Bowl of Cherries." It, with the pits, or except for pits, or something like that. One of her jokes in one of her books, and yes, this is one who I did read. Irma Bombeck. Men and women walk into an art gallery. Women see a hundred paintings hanging on the wall. Men see a hundred nails hanging, holding up those paintings. Yeah, bing, bing, boom. Sorry, I'm not. Yeah, I'm not completely defeated on humor. Just picky. Um, so. Jen, what kind of humor? Yeah, yes. We'll talk about my, my favorite styles of humor. Mm-hmm. Um, I found that a lot of people uh, they they still adhere to the humor they were they were raised on. You know, whatever made their parents laugh or whatever sure. the kinds of things that you enjoyed when you were younger. Uh, I was raised by Mystery Science Theater three thousand, <laughs> so I really enjoy a snarky, uh, observational, defeatist sort of deconstructive humor. And that, it usually gears me into, uh, like, a more British style of humor, that sort of flat delivery delivery and absurd situations that are funny because there's one guy in the middle going, what? So I'm, I'm very, uh, I don't respond to a lot of stand-up comedians because I don't usually end up with jokes. Uh, I'm one of those people who actually enjoyed Shrek for what it was because I like the fact that they, you know, pointed this out and said, ha, look, there's a reference, you know, in a situation you weren't expecting to find it. And I'm laughing. But most people are just, oh, a reference isn't a joke that doesn't count. It's like, well, <laughs> it was a joke to me. I thought it was funny. <laughs> I enjoyed that. Um, you like meta humor. I like meta. I really like meta humor. I love it when the thing I'm watching looks at the camera and completely breaks the fourth wall. And I really like to be taken by surprise, which I think a lot of humor is a juxtaposition style, um, the unexpected. A lot of laughter comes from just your body not really knowing how to respond to this thing it receives, and they just go, ha and that's the kind of a belly laugh I like. Um, usually the stand-up comedians and the, the, uh, the movies, the comedic movies that I do enjoy are ones where it's... Like, I really enjoy John Mulaney, who is this very put-together, uh, well, well-dressed, well polite, sort of dweeby-sounding guy, but he tells these hilarious stories about his life, and they're hilarious because of the words he chooses, the inflection he chooses, and when he decides to stop. So he's telling this, just as a very, very brief example, he's telling a story about a, uh, a party he attended when he was in high school that gets called, the cops get called on it, and everyone is super drunk. So... The cops get called, and one of his his friends picks up uh, a forty, a bottle, you know, an empty bottle of beer, shatters it on the floor, and yells "scatter!" and they all run in different directions. 
And John's telling the story as it's like, I ran into the washing room, into the, uh, the laundry room, and I climbed up on the washing machine, and I wiggled out of the window, and I ran across the yard, and I got to the chain link fence, and I said, I've never seen a fence that high before, and I woke up at home. <laughs> okay. And then I'm like, that's the best, that was the best joke, I loved it, because it was like, I want to, you know, it's like, you know what you expect to happen next, but it was funny, and he just told it with so much heart, and I just love that. So there's my style of humor, and it's not a style that everyone gets to. My mother did not think that was funny. <laughs> did not think that was funny at all. <laughs> Your mother wouldn't think that was funny. Yeah. Uh, speaking it's, of, go ahead. No, it's a funny story. Yeah. There are a lot of people who tell great funny stories. Bill Cosby, who's certainly not Flavor of the Month anymore, well. but had a lot of funny stories about oh, yeah. his family, about Ennis, and about... Uh, about Camille and about his uh, family and what they were like. They would take a long time to tell. And he could tell them impeccably with wonderful timing. Uh-huh. And so being a storyteller like him or uh, Garrison Keeler is another great storyteller. And Bill Cosby, I, I hate to say I, that I am so mad at him I can't see straight, but uh-huh. I am. But yeah, I loved his comedy. And yeah, it's okay. I've said it before. I'm picky, but... He has bet one of the best comedy versions talking about karate. So if you ever get a chance, look up Bill Cosby and karate. Being a martial artist myself, it makes me fall off the floor. Fall, <laughs> fall onto the floor. You fall off, off the floor. floor. <laughs> wow, the world is flat. They that's just good. knocked me straight off. Okay. That's funny. Yeah. <laughs> Jessica. So uh, comedic styles I like are actually the older styles. I mm-hmm. love... Gene Wilder and Richard Pryor movies. Okay. Uh, see no evil, hear no evil is hilarious. And uh, it's just a set of circumstances that they find themselves in and how they react to those circumstances. It's like Strange Brew or Planes, Trains, and Automobiles. Mm-hmm. It's, things happen to these people and then they react. But the way that they react is outrageous. <laughs> because Richard Pryor reacted outrageously to everything. So it's just uh, people are shooting at you, let's go towards them. Or um, in See No Evil, Hear No Evil, Gene Wilder is deaf and Richard Pryor is blind. And they help each other. And as you can imagine, they get into a lot of mischief together. So it's that kind of thing where I like seeing how people react to normal circumstances, like planes, trains, and automobiles, you miss your flight. Well, if you're John Candy, you miss your flight in an outrageous way. Mm-hmm. You don't just miss your flight. So, mm-hmm. Yeah, that sounds like um, kind of the, not the same thing, but the next door genre to the comedy of manners which, again, is another old form, but it's different than what he has. In this case, the comedy is from, basically, the comedy is due to people who are reacting to the circumstance, but all the com- comedic happens, the absurdity is because they're all constrained by social convention, and the comedy comes from the problems all result because everyone is following the rules, or trying to follow the rules. Mm-hmm. It's right. the reverse of uh, yeah, like what you're the Thin Man. About. The Thin Man is hilarious. It's actually a detective movie, but yeah. it is so funny if you actually listen to what they're saying. And they're following social convention, and that is why it's so funny. Mm-hmm. True. Go ahead, Fedora. One way that comedians of all stripes tend to use humor is to become different characters. They put on masks, you might say. Mm -hmm. And according to Melvin Hellitzer in Comedy Writing Secrets, How to Think Funny, Write Funny, Act Funny, and Get Paid for It, there are 20 different masks of comedy, which I thought was pretty interesting just to try to characterize them in some fashion. I don't know if you want to take them in any particular way, Oh, but we might just define a few of them. I think we all know what stand-up is. Uh Uh, But what would you say the aggressor is? Not sure. What is the aggressor? (laughs) Well, it's somebody like Don Rickles who uh, yells at people and and, uh, calls them bad names and Mm -hmm. says stuff like that. So kind of like, oh, what's his name? Uh... Crap! Never mind. Go ahead. I can't think of. I can't even think of the show he was on. He he later played a different type of character on 
in the heat of the night. Archie you, Bunker. Archie Bunker. From in, All in the Family. Thank you, From All in the Family. Exactly. Okay. I had a feeling that was who you were reaching for, but I, was, <laughs> I believed in you. Sorry, <laughs> I... I have had a brain fart for the last couple of days when it comes to names. Well, you know, Panorama will bake you alive. Yes, <laughs> I know. Okay, the sad sack, somebody who is always bemoaning his state, uh, a Woody Allen kind mm-hmm. of character, for example. Uh, let's see, here, here's one. I took my girl to a drive-in movie, and she said, do you want to get in the back seat? And I said, no, I want to stay up here with you. <laughs> For example. Yeah, bing Rodney Dangerfield did a lot of that. Yeah. <laughs> Take my wife, exactly. please. <laughs> Take my wife, yes. The uh, substance abuse rebel, booze rebel, drug rebel, something mm-hmm. like that. Somebody that talks about nothing but booze or drugs. Okay. Can you think of any that do a lot of that kind of thing? That one, no, I don't. I'm sure I'm sure there are, but that would be one that I'd turn off. Yeah, well, it's not not so much anymore. But uh, oh, people like George Carlin used to make a big shtick out of that. Yeah. You remember that when he talked about not remembering entire generations right. of people, mm-hmm. decades. Belushi. Oh, so sort of the joke. Yeah, if you Belushi remember the sixties? Yeah, you didn't. Yeah. You, you didn't there. enjoy them. Yeah, yeah. 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 did a lot of that. Yeah, a lot of those people are dead. I wonder why. <laughs> well, Belushi yeah. is definitely from drugs. So. <laughs> It's like, let's not make a joke about that, because he most certainly had was dead. Yeah. 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 And then we have the intellectual, or the pseudo-intellectual. Here's one from Woody Allen. I told my sexual experiences to Parker Brothers, and they made it into a game. Now, with the exception of Woody Allen, yeah, that's generally in my area. That's in my wheelhouse on comedy. That type of comedy. The intellectual, or pseudo-intellectual. That's very British, as being... It is. That's, yeah, that's what I was going to go. Monty Python. Yeah. That's the kind of thing David Letterman used to do, I think, and Johnny Carson a lot. Johnny Carson, definitely. David Letterman, I will have to take your word for it, because I did try to watch David Letterman. I watched one episode, one whole hour. I didn't even grin. <laughs> so I... I know, I've got, I'm sure I'm getting lots of hate mail about this time. Go ahead. Well, it also depends on the <laughs> scenario. You can, send, you can send all hate mail to Right Pack Radio at whitefieldmedia.com. <laughs> Along with any suggestions you wish to make for a show. Go ahead. Uh, how about a satirical person? We mentioned yeah. that earlier. Yeah. But who would you count as being someone good at satire these days? I mean, Bob Hope is gone. He used to say clever oh, yeah, and witty things about politicians. Well, uh, for fictional. He's gone too, but uh, Terry Pratchett, pretty much Lord all of his writing was oh, yeah. satire. He did it in fantasy, but it was very satirical. <laughs> um, and, uh, well, it, I mean, that goes back a long way. One of my favorites is from Will Rogers, who used to say, if pro is the opposite of con, is Congress the opposite of progress? <laughs> <laughs> I think with satire, though, everybody thinks that they're doing satire, especially people on Twitter. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Random things, and they think they're funny, and some of them are funny, but it's not actually satire, but that's what they think that they're doing. Uh, A lot of people wear satire as sort of this disguise to just be mean to people. Yes. That is that true. That is only funny when you and your fellow sociopaths are having fun feeling superior to other people, which brings back to, like, the... The, the conflict of power structure, but yeah. it's not satire when you're doing that. That's just you being haughty. <laughs> yeah, that's, and if you think it's funny, that means you're pretty demented. <laughs> this is why the fictional version is a lot... It, for instance, Shakespeare's doing it in a fictional play. Mm-hmm. Terry Pratchett's doing it in a whole fictional... Well, actually, so is uh, Shakespeare most of the time. Yeah. Not always, but it's supposed to reflect back on reality, but the actual story isn't necessarily real. I mean, isn't about real people. It's a situation where people, if not the same situation happening in the real world, but then people can reflect back. It's a parallel. Yeah. But now, irony, that's about the real world, usually. (laughs) The storyteller we already talked about, and some of the top storytellers. Well, how about the Rube? This is Country Boy. Kind of mm-hmm. hum, humor. 
the Gomer Andy Pyle. Griffith kind of Gomer Pyle. Yes, exactly. And the uh, Beverly Hillbillies. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> and they, of course, turn out to actually be smarter uh-huh. than the sophisticates all around. Uh-huh. And that is one another one. Uh, Andy Griffith had some funny records about first watching a football game. And he concluded at the end that the object of the game was to run a ball up and down this little field without stepping in something. (laughs) The old timer is a little bit like that. George Burns, when he was still around, made a lot of mileage out of that, being older than God, until we got to play him, for example. Yeah. He used to say, I'm so old, at my age, I don't even buy green bananas. <laughs> I remember him saying at one time that he was always, something along the line, picking up the young ladies, whining and dining them, and then turning them over to someone else. Because, <laughs> yeah, he didn't have the energy. That's self-deprecation humor. Yeah, that's <laughs> self-deprecation humor. And that brings us to the ethnic type, which is a stock in trade for a lot of Jewish stand-up comedians, for example, as they uh, they make, they poke sort of gentle fun at the at their, at their at own the uh, mores, folkways, and so on. I can't think of the name. There was another group. They were three Middle Easterners that were doing this. This was before Trump. I haven't really heard of them since. Mm. Things went so vitriolic. I don't know if they're still performing under that. Mm. Well, one that would do this, Jewish as well, Mel Brooks. Yeah. Uh, he did. He would do comedy all the time. Of if you ever watch any of his movies, there's always something in, mm-hmm. in there that's hidden. Um, I can't think of his comedian's name. He did stand up, but he would do it. He was Mexican, and he would do talk about do the athlete part. Where one comedy was that they were he was canoeing with somebody. I forget this whole thing. And they got to a sandbar. And like, well, oh, all we need to do is pick up a canoe, go walk across this thing, and. Across this guy's yard, it's like, yeah, okay, we're going to walk across the yard with a canoe over our heads. I'm Mexican. You know what's going to happen. They're going to shoot me. Or something along the lines of, okay, you got black people in, in Star Wars. You got white people in Star Wars. You don't see any Hispanics. This is before the um, tri- the prequels ever came out. He goes, you don't see any Hispanics, but you got, you, but you got Chewbacca. Any questions? Anyway, so and that was him. That was not, I'm just quoting. Well, paraphrasing as close as I can to memory. Go for it, Jen. Since we're on the topic of, of racial humor, mm-hmm. uh, I think it might be good to take a moment to discuss for our listening audience, mm-hmm. being a room full of white people, yeah. how to... Uh, today, not usually. Today, yeah. yeah. Yeah, Kathleen is actually busy doing some very African things right now. <laughs> yep. She has her African family in town, so hello to Kathleen if she's listening. Um, but the... Uh, just sort of the rules, the rules of thumb for what's appropriate for making uh, racial humor. There was specifically, like, obviously, as we've mentioned now, uh, you can make jokes about your own race. That's because that's you have authority. It. That's yeah. the key. And that's about it. Yes. Um, but there's also in the in the world we live in, there's a lot of um, of of like gatekeeping people saying that's racist that's racist that's racist a lot of times humor is used as an excuse to be racist Mm -hmm. a lot of times um racist humor is is only appropriate for certain people there was a rule that i heard in a a video essay by Lindsay ellis who's fantastic essayist i love her but uh she pointed out that it's if you're going to make any sort of a, a joke in that vein, even if you are of that, like, that group, but you're not in front of the camera, you know, I've, for all the camera, because we don't have one in here, knows uh, I could be a space alien, so I can make all the space alien jokes in the entire world. But uh, if there was, like, if space aliens were something that was at a culture that was previously, it's, it all ties back to colonialism on the oppressed end of a colonial society, um, trying to bring them down, you know, with the power structure, bringing them down to laugh at them is being cruel mm-hmm. because they 
have always been down. And and uh, there's no there's no humor in that. I don't remember who was discussing humor. I'm pulling from a lot of different places. This wasn't from uh, Lindsay's was the one that was talking about uh, bringing the colonialist aspect of it into it. That you know, it's like we can laugh at a conquering nation being foolish because that conquering nation in history deserves quote unquote to be brought down some notches. Like it's funny to see them demoralized. It's funny when we, you know, in the producers with Springtime for Hitler, because we're used to being afraid of Hitler when we were. And now seeing him made fun of is funny. Versus if you brought out a little lady uh, who collects and sells sticks for a living and you knocked her down, that's not funny. That's sad because you're taking someone who's already in a position of oppressed of you know being oppressed and is weak and you're weakening them further it's a lateral move that there's no humor so it's it's uh the the racial thing walk back don't make racial jokes <laughs> if you're not of that race uh if you're gonna pick a victim to make fun of think about yourself what, about yourself and but don't use that as a as privilege like think also about how your words go out into the wild, wider world, and being funny in one situation is not funny in another situation. I can't think of the name of it, but there was a Broadway play with Muppets. <laughs> I believe it was Avenue K. Whatever it is, Avenue Q. Avenue Q. That's <laughs> it. Uh, the soundtrack had a lot of good songs on it. Just so you know, warning: it's rated R. <laughs> um, not kid safe. Definitely not, but uh, they have a few very good songs that speak to this, but um, one of their songs that addresses this point exactly is, I believe the title is Everybody's a Little Bit Racist. Yes, sometimes. But, <laughs> yeah, but it addresses that different people in society have different permissions to say different things. Yeah, and it's, uh, yeah. specifically, it's not, it's not being racist when one group says, we can... We can use those words, we can make those jokes, and you can't. Mm -hmm. That's not them saying, you know, we're being racist against you because you can't do that. It's because you have the entire world's worth of experience, of not funny experience, that we are contrasting against. And if one person makes that joke, it is not a contrast against the experience, it is furthering the experience. So, Related to this, but... Different issue, not race. It makes me think of comedy that I never really thought was all that funny, <laughs> but a lot of people do, mm -hmm. and that's the comedy of the Three Stooges and oh, slapstick. Yeah, slapstick and slapstick in general. Because very often, it's very often not racial. It, as far as I remember, not racial. I, I'm not a big fan of it in general, mm -hmm. but that was very much, for lack of a better word, lateral. Basically, people beating up on each other. And it's just because, cruel. Yeah. yeah, yeah, it's cruelty. Some people think that uh, exactly. pain is funny. Yeah. yeah. Well, all humor is based upon that, but I think there are lines which are very hard to draw that ought to be drawn, yeah. frankly. Mm. And I never thought the Stooges were funny. My father loves the Three Stooges. And I know people who do, who do, too. Yeah, he loves them because he loves the absurdity of them, and that, you know, it's like they're... They're acting goofy. They're like clowns. You know, yeah. some people think clowns are funny and some people think they're horrifying. Like, it's different tastes. I think it's a different age level, too, and experience. I was not raised having, thinking that, you know, uh, the Three Stooges were funny, but I thought the Looney Tunes were pretty funny. The Looney Tunes were funny. I, I'm going to say that, and they had multiple layers. <laughs> but those, those are cartoons. They are cartoons. Clearly not people. Most. <laughs> Little kids find clowns terrifying. By the way. <laughs> uh, children's hospitals did surveys and discovered, oh, we made a big mistake painting the walls. Let's change this. <laughs> Forget the clowns. <laughs> well, so next up yes. is the immigrant, and uh, it, it links into it does, yeah, it the does other as well. Mm -hmm. But most. People who have some kind of ethnicity. I'm thinking Margaret Cho, for example. Mm -hmm. She makes Asian jokes all the time. Mm -hmm. and, or uh, Borat. Yes, absolutely. Mm -hmm. And, you know, Yakov Smirnov was a big hit in Branson for years and years. He finally has retired. But here's one of his jokes. Uh, I'm a comedian from Russia. 
I like American women. They do things Russian girls would never dream of doing, like showering. <laughs> <laughs> bing, bing, boom. Um, that's yeah. one thing, too, of the immigrant. We, we've talked about the other, but that's something we don't. In today's society, in my opinion, as it is, we don't think about, but Caucasians are have had the immigration issues as well over time. Various when, groups like various groups. the Irish, for example. Oh, let me I'll, I'll step back. Let me let me step back. <laughs> let me go back further. Our second president, John Adams. So we're now for those around the world who are trying to Wikipedia. This is eighteen oh three, give or take. Mm-hmm. Um, America's in a quasi war with France, and we are beating each other up in our churches over when that French people should come be immigrate immigrate to the United States. Of course, we've had the same thing with Germans. We've had the same thing with the Italians that you mentioned, the Irish, and so forth. It's it's been a constant thing, and so immigrant humor can come out of those all those different groupings of anybody who's coming over. So yes, or going to any other country, not just the United States. By the way, I'm sure there's um, Romana humor um, in France where they were tearing down gypsy towns. And that was just only about eh, five, ten years ago. And it's completely not funny any longer. No, it's not. Um, yeah, the uh, I was surprised to learn, and this is me showing my ignorance, um, that up until really not all that long ago, uh, Italians weren't considered white, you know, on, exactly. on paperwork. Oh. Uh-huh. The uh, And that a big part of them sort of joining the, quote, Caucasian section was just public opinion changing, surprisingly, around Columbus Day. <laughs> because mm-hmm. they, uh, the Columbus as an Italian explorer who played a big part in American history, this is why the, the myth of Columbus has persisted, mm-hmm. Um, helped sort of was used as a tool to say, oh look, and also the Italians are influential in American mm-hmm. big old you know uh, mythology. So therefore, we should probably stop picking up. Please don't pick on us anymore. Um, it's uh, like immigrant immigrant humor is very similar to the racial humor in that it's it, depending on what poor history and what's going on mm-hmm. determines whether or not it's funny or or considered funny by the yeah. majority of people. And that's something else, too. His comedy does change over to history. Yeah. Oh, Speaking of that, earlier we said that we were all white around here. Guess what? Growing up, I always considered myself white. Now I'm having to rethink that, because guess what? There's a new racial category on the board, um, the forum, and it, it fits me. Oh. So now I'm, am I all of a sudden multiracial? Because Middle Eastern is now a race. Oh. Guess where my dad's from? <laughs> well, then I apologize for misracing you. Yeah. <laughs> that was you my, know, I should have no. been more informed. But, no, the, the, the irony, well, not it's a, not so much irony, but I don't know what to call it. But if you look at the whole 23andMe thing, uh-huh. it correctly said that I either had a first or second degree relative that was 100% Middle Eastern, mm-hmm. which I do. <laughs> but if you look at where my different genes are from, None, neither of my X chromosomes is from the Middle East. Hmm. That's not possible, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> That's weird. That's yes. <laughs> Next up, partners. And there aren't so many great partner teams like there once were. Yeah, I don't know. Costello, my favorite. Exactly. I love them, too. And the Smothers Brothers and Martin and Lewis and so on. About the only ones I can think of today are, are kind of, I don't, really like them that much because I think there's too much cruelty involved in Penn and Teller. Yeah. Yeah. I'll go with that. It's, uh, I guess you could consider them a comedy duo. I always thought of the comedy magic. A magician duo. Yeah. Um, the, uh, they're, they're actually supposed to be funny. I, I just don't find them so. <laughs> yeah. The, uh, well, in, in movies if we're looking for, for duos like, um, would you consider uh, John C. Riley? Oh, and Will Ferrell. Will Ferrell a duo? Now they are. Now they are. They didn't used to be. But yeah. yeah, and uh, Jackie Chan and 
Chris 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 And um another one that I thought of immediately was uh oh gosh, now that I'm talking I've lost his name. Oh, who was that? Uh they just made the remake of it, um, for the it's T V series, cop show. Uh, it was in the seventies. Now they're doing the remake. The main actor is no, no. no, the um, Starsky and Hutch. Starsky and Hutch. They're redoing that. Re- they, they, did, they redid that one already. In yeah. the movie. No, not the movie. It's a it's a TV series. You were watching it. Um, We've uh, we have inadvertently targeted. A blog list. <laughs> no, no, no. It, it's a TV show that uh, it no, was, was on Netflix watching. or Hulu, one or the other. I don't remember which. Possibly Amazon. Current hot trend: remaking seventies cops. Yes. Yes. Yeah, no kidding. TV shows. <laughs> yeah. yeah, one of He's the characters. On this one, I don't one know of what... the characters was a black man who was married, and his wife, you know, uh, had a, almost a you know teenage kids, and then his wife had the baby, and then the other cop. Oh, you're talking about Lethal Weapon. Le- Thank you. Yes, okay. okay. That had the comedy duo, too. Yes. For our listeners, that's on Fox, by the way. <laughs> it's also yes, on that's Hulu. Not, that's not where he was watching it. Yeah. <laughs> Jess is aware of these things. I, 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 I'm a cable cutter. I, yeah. I, I watch on Hulu and Netflix. Go ahead, please. The next is Sketch. Mm-hmm. Sketch Performers. I would suppose that would fit into the all the Saturday Night Live sketches, mm-hmm. where I have watched it in a very long time. But you haven't missed anything. I'm but... sure you. Uh, who's on now? That's big, and what are the I characters? I have no idea. Yeah, no, no idea. No clue because it hasn't been good in at least ten years. <laughs> yeah, I was gonna say you haven't well, missed anything. Let's do some other ones. Roseanne, Rosanna, Dana. Yeah. <laughs> Go back a lot. I don't know if improv comedy falls into sketch or not. Sometimes, some of it does. Some of it does. And I used to do improv for a while. Um, and that's that's a form of comedy that is a yes and. So you just go with what's happening. You don't change it. You just keep going. Yeah. I think improv is actually on this list when we get there. Perfect. Uh, next up is ventriloquist. <laughs> yeah? You All like right. ventriloquist? Oh, it, I do. It's, it's time for me to reveal a deep, dark secret. Okay. Uh-oh. You're catching it here now, live, original. Go ahead. Elementary school, I was a ventriloquist. Oh, right. For about three years in a row in my school talent show. Wow. (laughs) Well, today we have one of the highest-paid entertainers in the world, Jeff Dunham. Who does the peanuts and all of those little characters that are so cute. The world has a love-hate relationship with him, just like they have a love-hate relationship with everything else. I was just thinking, uh, ventriloquists are sort of like comedy duos only. (laughs) Among them talking to themselves. One of them's a dummy and it's not the dummy. (laughs) (laughs) Kabing-boom. Okay. Yuck, 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 yuck. Continue, please. Okay. Uh, Next we have the impersonator. Yeah. And this is one person impersonating another. Like Melissa, what is her name? McCarthy. McCarthy, and she did. Spicer. Spicer was so controversial. Before that he got thing. fired. Before he got fired, yeah. Well, it, no, wouldn't, uh, it wouldn't be interesting. In that, yeah, in that vein, uh, Tina Fey's. Uh, uh, oh my gosh! Help Sarah me! Palin. Thank you! Oh my Sarah goodness! Yes. It's like I can I can do her voice and I know all her quotes. What is her name? <laughs> it's hard to think of names. I agree, it is. It's like no, it's, it's hard to say. A lot of these combine, yeah. But impersonations, it's really hard to say. It's like, yeah, it does that combine it with irony? Does that combine it with um, uh, uh, satire? Mm-hmm. Some of the time, satire. Although with like the Tina Fey, a lot of those quotes. Are so dead on, people get confused if Tina Fey said it or Sarah Palin said uh-huh. it. Yeah, was, uh, that became a character of Tina Fey so much that people would mistake her in the street for being <laughs> Sarah Palin. What <laughs> a terrible thing! <laughs> Poor woman. Rush out from my house. <laughs> it's it was just it's just perfect and. Uh, I know we have more on the list to go through, but I think it's also important <laughs> okay. just to point out of all of these these comedy situations, I hope the audience listening to us on the other end of the microphone can take a moment to consider just how mean all of this could be yes. if done wrong. <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah, that's the trick. Comedy can go so horribly wrong. It's not, it's, excuse the pun, it's not funny. Puns are um, funny. I like puns. Yeah, yeah, I've got pun humor. Um, but yeah, that's, I think that's what sometimes 
those who write comedy, which none of us do, around the mic, let or me at least that. not pure comedy. Yeah. Not pure well, comedy. I wouldn't say I write it. I would say I try sometimes to write funny scenes. Now I'm going to contest you with that because yeah. I there are entire chapters. Of Jack the Ripper that are just comedy. <laughs> Jack the Ripper in St. Louis by Fedora Amos. Yes, Jack the Ripper in St. Louis by Fedora Amos. Uh, there's you read one chapter that's about grisly murder, and then the next one is pure comedy. One of them has a camel in it. It's not the murder. Yeah. I do try to write funny scenes. I really do. So go ahead. Next we have the clown, which includes mimes and zanies. <laughs> oh, the, the queen of zany, I'll have to say, for writing, um, is, sometimes it go, gets too much, is oh, Janet Ivanovich. Mm. Why so serious? Sorry, wrong clown. <laughs> yeah. Moving on. Well, how about uh, clowns that you see out there? <laughs> you know, yeah. uh, well, we constantly watch them, but anyway, sorry. There aren't so many around anymore, I don't think. Because most people don't buy the bunnies. Uh, yeah. <laughs> they, they're not they're around bad. anymore because everyone else has set them on fire already. That's a good example. And they were actually funny. Yeah. That, though they did slapstick. But, you know, there have been some more recently. People like Lucille Ball was really a clown. Yeah. You saw that one about the candy when she's stuffing it in her mouth <laughs> and in her bra and everything. Mm-hmm. That she could think of. That is slapstick. That is clowning. So there are some elements that all around, I think, at various times. Anyway. Of course, I would take that more as the zany. Okay. Zany and clown. Same category. Yes. I like it. Next. Cartoonists. That should be up here, Ali. The cartoonists. And it also ties back into our uh, our tribute. It does. Author. Uh, for the of the the episode, uh, James Thurber, who was known very much for his cartoonism, as you said, and a lot of that was and I love visual humor. Like not just like I'm going to expand this even further out of the book and into the modern day. Uh, memes are a thing, mm-hmm. like taking an image and then repeating it ad nauseum to the point where just looking at it is hilarious because it's become its own joke. Yeah. And that's it's all that visual humor and I think a big part of cartoons and like this is I'm I'm sure the book is meaning cartoonism like like drawing sequential art cartoons in addition to Looney Tunes as mentioned before. But it's a chance to be absurd. It's a chance to be um extremely like contrasting, you know. The the little tiny man walking up to his frightening woman house. That's not, you could tell that story, but looking at it lets the comedy get in through a different part of your brain. And I just die for that kind of stuff. Um, there was, uh, well, Jessica and I are bad because we send each other hilarious pictures all the time. Uh, there was one just absurdist comedy moment that I was laughing at that she was looking at me like I was insane. Um, it was, people had posed their action figures to make it look like the Green Ranger was threatening Batman to eat a plate of hot dogs. And it was so absurd, but it was real. Like, someone posed action figures to make it look like that. And I thought that was great. And, and Jessica did not, did not think that was great. <laughs> she was waiting to make sense of it. I was waiting for the joke. <laughs> the joke was that it exists. Yes. As with most things. Well, I am ready to tell a personal experience that I had with James Thurber. Not that it was in person, but it was that I personally had one with his play, A Thurber Carnival, which I did in college. And uh, I played a part, I played second woman in that, because it's a bunch of sketches which are based upon his different short stories, Mm -hmm. okay? And so I was in this one, (laughs) and my director was... uh, I, I had two directors in college, and one of them was absolutely, he was going to get it his way or kill everybody on the stage, <laughs> and he would he would tell you, I want you to do it this way, and he would model it, and if you did it that way, he was happy and all was well. Mm-hmm. I had another director, the one for Thurber Carnival, who didn't say he didn't like it. He would just say, let's try that another way. Mm-hmm. 
And I heard him say, let's try that another way, about 40 or 50 times before I was just absolutely ready to give up. Mm-hmm. And the line was, I love it, okay? Mm-hmm. And I said this like 40 or 50 different ways until finally I said, I love it! And he loved it. <laughs> Next category, what you were talking about. And improvisation. <laughs> yes, improvisation. Improvisation. That's oh, it. That's that, the category. Oh, I thought you were going to read something. Yeah. That. Sorry. Improvisation is a form of comedy that is it's rewarded. It's yes, then. Yes, and. Not yes, then. Well, I'm screwed up. Yes, and. And what you can do, you it's always done. No, that's not true. I can't say always. Usually it's done with groups of people, two or more. And one person comes up with something, or the audience can come up with something and toss something out. And one person starts off a scene, and then it's a yes and, and then the other one of them will eventually change the scene, and you just keep going with it. And you can discover what what you can do. So By I the like way, it. this is a great way to figure out your characters. Mm-hmm. I'm going to say that as a writer. Mm. And as a voice actor, it helped with that as well. That's the reason why I ended up doing improv. My voice coach was like, you need to get an improv so that way you can break out of the shell of David Lucas mm-hmm. and get into other character shells. And yeah, it really did help. That's the way to kind of think of it as pantsing a live performance. Yeah. I think that improv is probably the smartest comedy just because it requires both performance and spontaneity. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I'd just like to give a, a little shout-out to Bob Baker. Oh, God, I yes. heard him, his troupe, once, and they asked for somebody from the audience to give a title of a blues song, and somebody yelled out, The Exterminator Blues. <laughs> and, oh, I get his and they did a great people. job yeah. of that. So I, I just, he's a, a great uh, improviser, has a great troupe. Go out and see mm-hmm. him if you can. It'll be yeah, fun. he's great. And that's actually who I studied improv under. So, by the way, if you are in St. Louis, Missouri, there's lots of places that you can go to learn improv, like the improv shop and so forth. Bob Baker is another one, um, and he, he teaches it for donations. So, there you go. And number 20, which I think is probably maybe the last one we have time for, is called the Bumbler. Mm. I'm thinking Don Knotts with yes. and Andy Griffith. Um, or Gilligan on Gilligan's Gilligan Island. On Gilligan on Gilligan's Island, and even Gomer Pyle in, Go- in Gomer Pyle. Mm-hmm. I, Peter Sellers is my oh, favorite. Yes. The bumbling Inspector Cluzo, mm-hmm. who always seems to live in in a honeypot of getting things done and <laughs> making everybody love him, except uh, Herbert Long character, whatever his name was. <laughs> yeah, and... Um, Oddly enough, I'm now when my mind just go blank with this guy's name. Crap. Steve Martin does, tries to do that from time to time as well. And here's the thing. I'm going to admit with Steve Martin. I love Steve Martin, and I hate Steve Martin. You show me a comedy with Steve Martin, I can guarantee I'm going to hate it. Oh, even as much as I hate Will Ferrell comedies. But you give me Steve Martin who's doing a uh, serious role, and oh my God, I bow before him. Well, it just goes to show you how much skill you need to be a comedian. Exactly. Agreed. Totally agree. Chevy Chase is a lot of bumbling in between his slapstick, too. Oh, yeah. So. Well, what about uh, just about anything that Jim Carrey does, except the parts where he's super serious and makes you cry? <sighs> yeah, Jim Carrey actually is capable of acting. He just doesn't show it in all his movies. He just does it. <laughs> yeah. He's a painter now, you know. He paints. He's a sad clown now. <laughs> Okay, that's a depressing note. <laughs> well, and a lot of, uh, well, like, we can end on that, I think, yeah, I pretty think so. well, because a lot of humor comes from personal pain. A lot it of people does. laugh to get through hard times, and the funniest people have been through the hardest times, as seen by how many comedians have committed suicide in recent history mm-hmm. and past history. Mm-hmm. It's, uh, it's, it's a coping mechanism for the entire world. You yeah. want to laugh because if you don't laugh, you'll start crying. You want to make fun of it because if you look it straight in the face, you'll be too scared to move. It's it's uh, it's, it's valuable, but Constant. also personal. 
Going with that comedy acts as a shield. Mm-hmm. It acts as a way to buffer between. You have a choice, as they say, you can laugh or you can cry. Mm-hmm. I choose to laugh. And of course, we have wonderful wordplay. This we is do. from uh, May West. I used to be Snow White, but then I drifted. Mm-hmm. <laughs> bing, bing, boom. And on that note, thank you everybody for listening. I hope you, as other fellow writers, you got something out of this. And if not, at least hopefully you had a couple of laughs. Tune in next week for yet another interesting topic in the writing industry. It is going to be on working on book covers. So more details next week. Stay tuned. They're laughing or they're crying. And boom, bing, boom, boom. The new theme songs for Right Pack Radio were written and performed by Meredith Tate. All copyrights remain with her.